<laughs> well, this is deeply ironic. <laughs> so the question that I was trying to ask was, have you ever started something new and almost immediately done something to kind of jack it up right from the beginning? <laughs> like start to preach without turning your microphone on? Or uh, you know, maybe it's your first day at work and you say something to really get off on the wrong foot with a coworker. Or you're moving and you accidentally run over some of your neighbor's shrubs with the moving truck. Uh, both of those I may or may not have done in the past different times. Um, now, for those of you I haven't met before, my name is Mike King and I'm a senior pastor here at Suburban. And I, I have done that kind of thing in my life more times than I can count. And I'll, I'll just share maybe the most glaring example of that with you. Uh, so my wife Martha and I have been married almost 25 years. And we were married on December 19th. And it was a few weeks after our wedding, I came home from work, and we sat down for dinner together, and we start talking, you know, we're just chatting about the day, what you doing? She's like, oh, you know, my, my brother Daniel called, and I'm like, oh, that's great, how's he doing? Uh, so Martha's one of five kids, and at that time, her four siblings were spread out all over the country, and her parents were still living in Chile in South America. So got the update on Daniel, that's great, dinner conversation moves on. Like 10 minutes later, she's like, hey, so my, my oldest brother Bruce called today. I'm like, well, that's weird, but uh, how's he doing? You know, so I get the update on Bruce, and then, you know, conversation moves on. And then a couple of minutes later, she says, so my parents called today from Chile. And this is back when it was, like, expensive to call internationally and things like that. And at that point, my heart sank because I remembered why they were calling. Uh, it was her birthday. Yeah. So we had been married for less than a month, and I completely forgot that it was her birthday. I mean, what kind of a lousy husband do you have to be to do that, right? And I tell you, that weekend we saw my parents and my sister, and my mom and my sister read me the riot act for missing that. Um, one of the positive things that came out of that is that for about 10 years after that, every single birthday, anniversary, Christmas, Valentine's Day, you name it, either my mom or my sister would call me about 10 days ahead of time <laughs> and be like, hey, idiot, I don't know if you remember what's coming or not, but, which is great, because I need all the reminders that I can get. Um, but needless to say, that, that first birthday was not a real positive start to the marriage in terms of celebrating important dates together. I mean, really, I, I had just made all of these promises to love and care for, and I, I feel like I just dropped the ball right out of the gate. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my father-in-law. Uh, so thank you. Um, Craig, do you want to come up here and finish this? Or no? Okay. All right. I'll... So anyway, I wanted to share that story because this morning we're finishing up a sermon series where we're working our way through the book of Exodus. And this morning we're going to look at a story where the people of Israel do something that makes me forgetting Martha's birthday seem like chump change in comparison. So I want to invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Exodus chapter 32. If it would help you for any reason, there are some red Bibles in those seats around you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number that's there on the screen. But as you're turning there, I, I really want to invite you, even if you're familiar with the story, uh, to lean in and to listen to what we're going to be talking about today. Because if you have ever done something stupid... If you have ever messed up and damaged uh, the people or the relationships that really matter a lot to you, I think you're going to be encouraged by what you hear today. Uh, because this story reminds us that our mistakes don't have to be the end of the story. 
Um, so let's, first, let's kind of see where this story fits into the book of Exodus as a whole. So I've kind of set it up this way in the series. There's kind of three main chunks to the book of Exodus. Uh, the first third of the book is when God actually rescues the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's where we get the name Exodus. It describes that event. Kind of in the, the middle section of the book, God is entering into, he's establishing a new relationship with the people of Israel, kind of setting the terms of that and entering into this covenant with them. And then in the last third of the book, God is making plans to actually physically come and, and live. His presence is going to be among his people. So he gives them instructions on how to build this elaborate tabernacle, this tent where his presence is going to dwell. And a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at that, that middle section of the book about the covenant, about the relationship that God created with his people. He said, I'm going to be your God, you'll be my people. And he enters into this covenant, which is kind of a form of an ancient contract with them. And in that, he lists out, okay, here are all the things that you need to do, the, the, the laws that you need to obey to hold up your side of this deal. And those laws are really summarized in what we know as the Ten Commandments. And then after giving all that, laying the laws out, there's this big ceremony in chapter 24 where the people of Israel sort of formally enter into this relationship with God. And after Moses reviews all the laws that they're going to obey, this is what the people of Israel say. They say, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So with these words, I mean like fresh on the lips of the people of Israel, Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And he spends, there's about seven chapters where God gives him very, very detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle, how to build this tent where his presence is going to physically live with them. Um, but it, so that, that's kind of going on. But what, look at how that part ends. So chapter 31 ends this way. He's given him all his instructions. And it says, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So back in chapter 20, God kind of verbally gives Moses the Ten Commandments and the law, and the people of Israel, they hear it, they sign off on it. But now Moses is up on the mountain, as he's getting ready to leave, God gives him a hard copy of it. He's kind of written and inscribed the Ten Commandments that the people have just agreed to obey on this tablet. So God finishes giving all that to Moses, and Moses is getting ready to head back down the mountains when the, the narrator kind of shifts. We move from the mountaintop down to the camp. And what we see when we get to chapter 32 is that the people at the camp have been getting restless. So here's how that story starts. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, that's Moses' brother, and they said, hey, Aaron, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. Right, so the text doesn't say how long Moses has been gone. But it's long enough that the people of Israel get antsy. It's long enough that they forget the terms of the covenant that they just made. I mean, literally, right, the last time we saw the people of Israel in this story, the last thing they said was, everything, we'll do everything the Lord says. We will obey. And part of what they agreed to obey is the laws that are summarized in what we know as the Ten Commandments. And if you know the Ten Commandments, do you know how those start? This is how that, those start out. It says, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shouldn't make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You should not bow down, bow down to them or worship them. So literally, like while Moses is up on the mountaintop, like getting a hard copy of the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel are down in the camp breaking those commandments just as quickly as Moses can get them down in writing. Like I thought forgetting Martha's birthday was a bad way to start the relationship, right? But this is way worse than that. Um, now, there is a little bit of debate, if you like kind of going down these rabbit holes, among scholars about what exactly the people of Israel are asking Aaron to do. Because that, that text in Hebrew where it says, uh, make us gods who will go before us, you can read that a couple of different ways. 
So the Hebrew word that gets translated there as gods is the word Elohim, which is a plural word. So it, it rightly can refer to more than one God. But in this little quirk of the Hebrew language, sometimes that plural word Elohim needs to be translated as God, singular, and it actually refers to Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible, the one true God. So you have to actually look at the whole context to figure out, okay, how is the author using that here? It's, it's kind of a confusing way that Hebrew works, which is why I didn't do nearly as well in Hebrew as I did in Greek. Um, but here, so basically scholars, they're wondering, okay, what's going on here? Is this calf that they're putting together, is this like a whole different God that the people of Israel are somehow worshiping? Or is this calf somehow like a, a worship aid? Is it something, an idol, an image that's supposed to help them in their worship of the one true God? And we can't really get into all of the details about that. But a lot of scholars land on the, 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 the side of saying, okay, that this calf isn't like a whole new God they're making up, like the cow God or something. Something that's trying to help them connect with and worship the one true God. But either way you land on that issue, it is very clear that right from the beginning, right, they're breaking the rules. The debate is not, are they doing something wrong? The debate among scholars is, are they breaking the first commandment or the second commandment? Because clearly, they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing and that they just agreed to not do. So let's keep reading. We'll see how it plays out. So they, they demand that Aaron help them. And it says, so Aaron answered them, okay, well, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, right? So that word, the Lord, that's Yahweh. That's God's name. They're going to use this calf to, to worship him. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to drink and eat and got up to indulge in revelry. So again, Aaron, after making this, he presents it to him and says, hey, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. And again, this is one of those clues that scholars look at and say, okay, we think it's actually an idol of that God because he says the next day it's going to be incorporated into this festival where they are worshiping Yahweh, the, the one true God. And the thing to keep in mind with all of this is that back in the ancient Near East, cows, like bulls, cows, like they, were, they were symbols of power and strength. I mean, if you think about it, like a full-grown steer, like that's a big, powerful animal. And oftentimes it was used to represent uh, military might. So it's something that I'm sure in their minds, it connects them to the power of God who literally just delivered them from the people of Egypt. So I, I think this is what's going on in, in their mind, right? Moses, who was, was the spokesman, right? Who was like the, their tangible connection to the presence of the God who loved them and rescued them. Moses is gone and they're not sure when he's coming back. So they decide we need something else. We need something else to help us connect with this God. So they end up building an idol, even though that is exactly what God had clearly commanded them not to do. So up on the mountain, Moses is getting ready to go down, and God knows what's going on down there. So he, he fills Moses in on it. And as Moses is going down the mountain, the text says this. It says, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf in the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Okay, now when I was a kid and I heard this story about Moses sort of throwing the, 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 the tablets down and breaking them, really it, it almost struck me like Moses was having a temper tantrum. You know, like he's just so mad he's going to throw his stuff down. Um, and the text does say that he's angry. 
But I think there's actually something much more important going on here. Because, again, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks back when we were talking about how ancient covenants worked. But when you entered into an ancient covenant, they almost always made a, a summary of that document, you know, a summary of the agreement. And the Ten Commandments are very likely this, this summary of the agreement that they had, uh, both sides had agreed to. So this is an image of a Sumerian uh, tablets from around 2600 BC, but this is one of those sort of uh, summaries of a covenant. This, this one actually summarizes a land sale. Um, so it would, if you think about the tablets that Moses is smashing, maybe it looks something like this. But in that day and age, like when you smash the tablets that recorded a legal agreement, basically what you're saying is that the deal is off, right? This covenant is not in, in, in effect anymore. So when Moses throws these things down and breaks them, I think it's actually a sign that from God's perspective, Israel's sin has nullified the covenant, right? They have violated the agreement. And all of that leads to a really important question, which is what's going to happen next, right? Remember, God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, because he promised that he was going to work through them to bring hope and rescue and healing to the whole world. Right? That's why he entered into this covenant with them in the first place. But now, the people of Israel haven't lived out their side of the deal. Right? They've broken their side of the agreement. So what's going to happen to God's rescue plan? What's going to happen to the promises that he made? Is, is there some way to renew the covenant with the people of Israel? Is he just going to cut them off and start over with another group? There's, there's this tension here, right? Because God has promised to work through this group. But God has also said that disobedience has consequences. Right? So what's, what's the way forward? Well, the way forward is actually found in a pair of verses in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, it is a pair of verses that they're so important that these verses are quoted like 25 times by other Old Testament books, right? So other Old Testament books, when they're writing, they quote this verse more than any other verse in the Bible because it's in this verse that God gives us almost like an autobiography. He gives us a picture of himself and his heart. So if you want to flip over to chapter 34, I'll kind of summarize what happens in the story between here and there. So Moses returns to the camp. He sees the people are running wild in their disobedience. And as a punishment for that, several thousand people die. But then Moses goes back up the mountain. He intercedes behalf on the people of Israel. He's like, please, God, don't kill them all. Don't forget your promises. Don't, don't throw away this covenant. What about those things? So God relents, and he promises that he's not going to cut the people off completely, and he's not going to abandon them. And then what you see in chapter 34 is that God is ready to renew the covenant with Israel. So again, remember that the tablets that, that recognize the covenant, those things were broken, right? So the covenant's kind of off, at least in that ancient understanding of things. So it has to be redone. And God makes it really clear that that's his purpose in this chapter because he tells Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And earlier in the chapter at the beginning, he, he sort of gives him instructions on that. So he says, uh, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. So Moses does that. He chisels out the two tablets like the first one. He goes up on Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord commanded him, and he's carrying these tablets in his hand. And again, God says, you know, I want you to write some things down because I am making a covenant again with the people of Israel. So Moses carves these tablets. He's got them up there. And then look what he says this. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. 
And then right after this, here they come. This is what you got to pay attention to. These are, are maybe two of the most important verses in the entire Bible because it's here that God gives a description of his own heart. This is who God says he is. So I say this. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now again, these these verses are so important because the rest of the biblical story uses this. This is God's self-portrait. And not long ago, the Bible Project, which is a wonderful nonprofit that works out of Portland, uh, came up with a video that really digs into these verses. And I wanted to take just a couple of minutes and have us watch that together today. The Bible is a collection of many ancient Israelite scrolls. And together, they're telling one unified story. Now, if you look at the second scroll, Exodus, you'll find two important sentences. They're actually so important that they're referenced and requoted over 20 more times within the Bible itself. It must be important. What does it say? Yahweh, Yahweh, that's God's name, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. I can see why it's repeated so often. These attributes of God are really lovely. And the statement goes on. He maintains loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. Okay, hold on. This last part takes a bit of a turn. We're first talking about God's love, and suddenly it's about his judgment on grandkids. So... Is God merciful or vengeful? Yeah, great question. Let's see these words in a larger context by looking at something important in Genesis, the first scroll of the Bible. There, God chooses one family, the Israelites, from among the nations. And he promises that he's going to rescue the whole world through this family somehow. And Genesis ends with the family of Abraham in Egypt. Then the book of Exodus begins, and this book has two large movements. Right, okay, so this first movement of Exodus, God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And in the second movement, God leads them to Mount Sinai, where they camp out for a year. And God invites this whole nation into a partnership called a covenant, so that they can be shaped by his values and character. And represent God to all the other nations. Exactly. Now, this whole Mount Sinai movement in Exodus can be broken up into four literary units. First, there's the actual ceremony where the Israelites agree to be God's partners. And God sets up the terms of the relationship, starting with the Ten Commandments. The first two are... Don't give your allegiance to other gods and don't make any idle images of God. Seems simple enough. After that, God shows Moses detailed blueprints for building this sacred home so that God can come and live among them. Oh, right. And then comes a really long narrative about the building of that sacred home. But you miss something. Right in between these sections is the story that has our description about God's character. The story begins with Moses going up on the mountain, writing down the partner agreement as the Israelites are at the base of the mountain, violating the first two commands. That's ridiculous. They're breaking the covenant vows while the ceremony is still going on. Yes. And so God is hurt and angry, and he warns Moses that this betrayal will keep on happening. God is ready to call it quits. But what about his promise to rescue the world through them? 
Yeah, exactly. This is what Moses brings up. And so what is God going to do? Should he end the partnership, which would be fair? Or will he be faithful to his promise to Abraham and show them mercy? Yeah, exactly. Now, look back at the words that we began with and you'll see they're about this very tension between God's mercy and his justice. Okay, so the statement opens like this. A God compassionate and gracious. In Hebrew, this line has three words that rhyme. El Rahum Dachanun. And the line overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness matches the first, as it also has three Hebrew words. Rav Chesed Ve'emet. Each of those lines have two attributes of God, and they surround a fifth attribute, that God is slow to anger. Right. Now, that's the first half of this description of God. Then comes the second half. God maintains loyal love for thousands. And how is he going to remain loyal to people who keep rebelling against him? By forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Uh, But God's forgiveness doesn't mean people can just do whatever they want. Right. God's mercy is balanced in what follows. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He'll bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. The third and the fourth what? Well, it's referring to generations of people who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. They'll get what they deserve. But notice, this small number of generations contrasts that massive number up above. God's loyal love to thousands. Right. And then check this out. God's forgiveness of iniquity in this line is contrasted with his justice on iniquity in this line. Okay, and all those lines are surrounding a central line here about God's justice. He will not declare innocent the guilty. So while God is slow to anger, he is also just. Right. This is the tension that these two sentences are exploring. How does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a rebellious people? This is the challenge God faces in this story, and it's the same challenge he faces in the whole biblical story as he works to rescue the world through this family. With that in mind, we can take a closer look at these five attributes that God declares about himself to Moses. A God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And we'll see how each one leads us deeper into the character of God and into the story of the Bible. So I wanted to show that video because it it recaps some of what we talked about today and a lot of what we've talked about the series in a way that I think really helps pull together those different threads of God's character. It helps you understand it. It really helps us answer that question. Okay, what what is God going to do? What's the way forward? Because the answer to the question is rooted in the character of God himself. God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and loving and full of faithfulness. He's not going to give up on his people. And he's not going to give up on his rescue plan for the world. Instead, somehow, he is going to find a way forward in spite of the sins and failures of his people. There are going to be times when God punishes and when he hands out justice for sure. But throughout the course of the Bible, what we see is that when there is an appeal made to God's mercy, he almost always responds with mercy. And see, one of the things that I think we need to see here is that God's covenant promise keeps going even when God's covenant partners fall short. 
See, really what God is doing is he is making a promise, not about what the other people are going to do, but a promise about who he is, about the stability of his character, not just to this generation there in the desert, but to all generations, right? It's why during this series we've been singing the song we sang today that says you are the same God. What you did back then is what you can do now because you are consistent with your character and who you are, right? God's promising to be consistent with his character, and that, that must have been so assuring to the people of Israel at that time. Because again, in the worldview of the day, like the gods were capricious, they changed all the times, you know, they were moody, like one day they're this and the next day they're that. But their God, the God of Israel, the one true God, right, he is letting them know that he will always act consistently with his character. Now the video that we watched is actually just the first in a series that the Bible Project did. There's five other videos. They, they look at each of those five characteristics of God and do a short video. They're about five minutes long on each of them. And if you need something to do for your own kind of personal Bible study time this week, I would encourage you to work through those five videos. They're, they're really helpful and it can help you know more about the character of God and the character that he promises to be consistent with in all of his actions. Right, but God's going to be consistent with who he is. And, and the rest of the story of the Bible just shows us how that plays out. Right, God, it's like the video said, God's trying to figure out how do I work forward and keep working with these people who continue to be sinful and selfish and rebellious. And the Bible shows us that he doesn't give up on working with the people of Israel. He honors his part of the covenant. And he leads them to a land that's going to be their home base where they can work from. And he dwells with them there. But the people of Israel fail to live out their side of the covenant over and over and over again. So eventually God pulls his hand of protection back and he allows his people to be captured and carried off into exile by the people of Babylon. Um, but luckily, the story of the Bible doesn't stop in Exodus and it doesn't start with the exile. Instead, I think when you look at the Old Testament as a whole and the way that, that God's people just continue to fail, I think what you see is that the flaws and the failures of God's people it just, it just points to this need for rescue that we all have, for a help that comes from outside of ourself that is more than what we can do on our own. Which is why God provided that in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Who was born into this family of Abraham, fulfilling the promises that God made. Jesus was born and provided a way for all of us to come back into a right relationship with God and to enjoy his presence. God knew that for people to truly live the lives that he was calling them to live, they needed somebody to come and to do for them, for once and for all, what, what the law and all the sacrificial things with the temple and the tabernacle, what those things could only do temporarily. Right? In the New Testament book of, of Hebrews, it talks about how the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus permanently removed the damage that sin had done and the separation between God and us that our sin created. And the end result of that is that God's people can once again live in God's place, enjoying God's presence, right? As the Holy Spirit now comes and lives in us, we are able to truly live the full and free lives that God created us to live. So, so where do we go from here? Um, today we're finishing up this series on Exodus because in, in a lot of ways the book kind of ends here. You know, there, there's the story with the golden calf, God renews the covenant, and then in the last six or seven chapters, it's just a repeat of what we read before this. You know, we get these detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Then we have very detailed accounting of how they build the tabernacle according to those instructions. And then the book ends with God's presence actually coming and taking up residence in that tabernacle and being with his people. Uh, so that's where that story ends. But, but for today, I want us to go back to where we started in our time together today, which is with that idea that we have all made mistakes, Right? You know, whether it's, you know, forgetting your wife's birthday a month into your relationship, you know, or whether it's something that happens, you know, decades into a relationship. 
we're all broken people and we don't always get it right like sometimes we do things that hurt other people even the people that we love the most and sometimes we do that on accident but you know what an awful lot of the time we know exactly what we're doing we just decide to give in and to let the sinful selfish nasty little broken parts of us uh, take over the driver's seat and help us do things that we know we shouldn't be doing right an early christian leader paul described that this way right he says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of god all of us have sinned and fall short of god's design for our lives and our world so and, and and that's why i think when we think about you know what does it mean to try to follow god in this world today uh, the question that we should ask ourselves is not are we going to mess up right are we going to fall short at times of course we will we're all going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt the people that we love. Uh, we're going to talk and act in ways that don't honor God. So the question to ask this morning is not, are we going to fall short? Really, the question I think God's Spirit is prompting us to ask is, what are we going to do when we fall short? And there's no question at all what God wants us to do when we fall short. Right? He calls us to get up. Right? It says in Proverbs 24, it says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. It's not always easy, but responding rightly when we sin, when we make mistakes, it involves asking God for his forgiveness and trusting that because he's going to act in ways that are true to his consisting, because he was a savior then, he's a savior now. Because he was merciful then, he will be merciful now. We trust that he will indeed show compassion and mercy to us when we ask for his forgiveness. Um, but there's another part to how we respond rightly when we fall down. It's not just about kind of repairing, seeing how we can, can be made whole in our relationship with God. Right? Because responding rightly involves also having God help us know how his grace and love and power can help us to repair that we've damaged done in other people's lives. Because we live in relationships with other people. And when we sin, those people are often damaged. Those relationships are often damaged. The consequences of our sin often spreads out beyond us. And the consequences don't go away just because we've been forgiven. So if we are serious about responding well to our mistakes, we have to face that. We have to invite God's power to help us do whatever we can to repair and to restore the damage that we've done. And so here's how I want us to end today. Um, we're going to end by coming together to the communion table. Oftentimes we take communion in the middle of our service, but it seemed right to end this way today because it's only in the presence of that loving and compassionate God that we find the forgiveness that we ourselves need. Right? It's only in the presence of that loving and compassionate God that we find the strength that we need to, to actually get back up and keep moving forward when we have messed up and sinned and broken things. And it's only in the presence of that loving and compassionate God that we find the power that we need to do this kingdom work of repairing uh, this, the damage that our sin has caused. So as we prepare to take communion, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to, to pray with me. And the people who are helping administer communion can get up. We're going to pray. And then coming out of that prayer, uh, the musicians are just going to give us a time of instrumental music. And during that time, you all are invited to take communion uh, really at whatever point you want. If you don't want to take communion for any reason today, you can just pass the tray along when it comes to you. But I want to encourage you in this time where there's some instrumental music to just stop and connect with the power and the presence of the real and loving God. Just like he showed up in that tabernacle at the end of Exodus. He is present and is alive and is real with us here today. And after we've had a chance to take communion, we'll sing a song that, that really, I think, helps us focus in on that. But to prepare for that, I just want to invite you to pray with me. So God, we are so grateful 
We're so grateful that you are, in fact, here with us today, Uh, that just like your real presence and your real power uh, came and lived with the people of Israel in the tabernacle, that you are here in this place, that the Holy Spirit helps us connect with you. And God, in these moments that follow, as we have an opportunity to gather and take communion, we believe in a way that, that we can't fully wrap our minds around, that you are present with us when we take the cup and when we take the bread. So God, as we do that, I just pray that you would meet each one of us where we are, that he would have, we would have a true encounter with your love and your grace and your power and your presence, and that we would receive from you today everything that we need to live for you today. Amen.